production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Hello and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland, where we're devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. It's Thursday, October 13th, and I'm Robin Minter Smyers, a partner at Thompson Hine and the immediate past president of the City Club of Cleveland. I'm honored to introduce today's forum, U.S. Industrial Strategy for the 21st Century, which is the annual David Warshawski uh, Memorial Forum. Today, we have the pleasure of hearing from Brian Deese, the director of the White House National Economic Council. Mr. Deese advises President Biden on domestic and international economic policy. In this role, he has been a principal architect of the president's economic agenda, which includes major legislation like the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, the Chips and Science Act, and the Inflation Reduction Act. In the wake of this major legislation, the Biden-Harris administration is implementing major public investments across a range of sectors, like clean energy, semiconductors, and broadband, to name just a few. And we are already seeing those investments here in Ohio. Just yesterday, Ohio members of Congress announced that our state will receive nearly $2 billion in funds from the Infrastructure Act which will be dedicated to improving Ohio's bridges, roads, and electric vehicle infrastructure. According to Deese, these investments are key to executing the administration's modern American industrial strategy, which aims to strengthen supply chains, rebuild the domestic industrial base, and create good jobs across the country. Prior to this role, Deese was a senior advisor to President Barack Obama. He was instrumental both in engineering the rescue of the U.S. auto industry in 2009 and in negotiating the Paris Climate Agreement in 2015. During the Obama-Biden administration, Deese also served as the acting director of the Office of Management and Budget and the deputy director of the National Economic Council. So what is the future of the administration's industrial strategy and its approach to implementing recent legislation? If you have a question for our speaker, you can text it to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. You can also tweet your question at the City Club, and the City Club staff will try to work it into the second half of the program. Members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming Brian Deese. Thank you very much. Um, I come bearing greetings from the President of the United States um, and apologies for uh, being late. Um, I apologize. Uh, that's on me. Um, so um, thank you. Uh, thank you, Robin, for that uh, introduction. Uh, and thank you to this institution, uh, to uh, Dan and to everybody who is currently keeping alive a tradition which uh, is really extraordinary and improbable, um, but 
one of the many things that makes America so unique is our ability to have sustained civic engagement and conversation made even harder uh, in our modern uh, uh, environment, uh, but even more important to be able to have these conversations. So I'm really, really excited to be here today. Um, uh, I was just, uh, just uh, on with the president who is out on the West Coast and uh, with Secretary Yellen who is in Washington DC with her uh, senior uh, finance minister counterparts from across the world. Uh, it's a complicated global environment and so uh, important for us to catch up on the immediate uh, issues. But why, one of the reasons I'm so happy to be here today is that even as we grapple with the immediate economic challenges we face, now more than ever it is important for us to think about how we are building for the long-term economic future. Uh, that we need as a country. And that's going to be the focus of my remarks today. I'm going to try to move relatively quickly here because I'm very eager to get engaged in the conversation portion of this in the second half of the event. So um, a modern American industrial strategy. Um, I have been for some time talking about this idea and saying that it's long past time that we embrace and have a, a modern industrial strategy. So I want to talk today a little bit about the, the what and the how and where we're going on this front. Um, at its core, the idea is a simple one that strategic public investments are essential to achieving the full potential of our nation's economy. Uh, it's also an idea that's as old as the country, uh, literally. Uh, Alexander Ham Hamilton, uh, our first Treasury Secretary, insisted that, quote, the public purse must supply the deficiency of private resource to prompt and improve the efforts of industry. And I really couldn't think of a better place to have this conversation than Cleveland, uh, than Cleveland, Ohio. Your story exemplifies this basic truth that government, industry, labor working together can unlock extraordinary economic potential. Um, two centuries ago, we built the, we as a country built the Erie Canal, our first superhighway. Um, we connected Cleveland to global commerce President Lincoln empowered states to invest directly in their people uh, by using federal land grants uh, to establish land grant colleges, uh, which brought us the Ohio State University uh, and Central State University. Uh, and Cleveland became a vital transportation hub for the country, booming industries from oil to steel. And that industrial strength fueled innovation. Cleveland was home to the first public square illuminated by electricity, the first electric streetcar, the first electric traffic light, uh, a Cleveland automaker made the first car to cross the country coast to coast, and another Cleveland automaker about a century ago pioneered some of the earliest electric vehicles, the innovation from which we are now seeing explode today. America invested in Cleveland and in Ohio, and in return, Ohioans innovated, expanded, and generated benefits for all of America. But it's also fitting to be here in Cleveland because when American policy turns away from this proud, proud tradi tradition, it is places like Cleveland that bear the economic brunt. And starting in the early 1980s, uh, the embrace of a, a trickle-down economic strategy led to decades of neglect in these engines of innovation. And what followed was the decline in our nation's industrial and technological innovation capacity. And as we disinvested, other countries, most notably China, raced ahead, investing in infrastructure, manufacturing, and emerging technologies. And today, these trends pose a clear threat to America's economic and national security interests. But today, the good news is that a fundamental change is happening in Ohio and across America. Robin, you just mentioned it. And I'm here to really talk about 
what that change is, and where we go. Thanks to President Biden's leadership, we are embarking on a new chapter and making the most significant public investment in decades in America's industrial capacity. And we're reviving this uniquely powerful tradition that Cleveland embodies, but rebuilt for a new era. Over the last year and a half, President Biden has worked with Congress to enact four foundational laws. In Washington, D.C., we spend a lot of time talking about bill titles. I'm going to name them, and then we're going to move right on to what they actually mean for the country. The American Rescue Plan, which brought our economy back from the, uh, the brink, but more recently, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, the Chips and Science Act, and the Inflation Reduction Act. A lot of bills, lots of time working with Congress. But at the core, there's a strong animating vision that unifies these laws, which is a modern American industrial strategy. And here's what the American industrial strategy does. It identifies areas where relying on private industry on its own will not mobilize the investment necessary to achieve our core economic and national security interests. It then uses public investment to spur private investment and innovation. It means that rather than accepting as our nation's fate that the individualized decisions of those looking only at their private bottom lines will put us behind in these key sectors, we engage in strategic investment in those areas that will form the backbone of our economic growth over the coming decades, and areas where we need to expand the nation's productive capacity. Now, this is not a strategy designed to replace or push aside the private sector. I want to be really clear about this from the front. It uses public investment to crowd in more private investment and to make sure that the cumulative benefits of this investment strengthen our national bottom line. It encourages investment in all regions and communities, and it invests in workers, the people who will generate all this product productivity and innovation. This is also not about having the government pick winners and losers. Our approach is different. Our strategy reflects a commitment to make the bold investments in areas that everyone, from academics to business leaders alike, agree are foundational to our economic growth. These investments help to accelerate and shape breakneck innovation and encourage private investment in market competition in ways that pick only one winner, the productivity, opportunity, and standard of living of the American people. Now, the first of these areas is transportation infrastructure. As Robin, you already mentioned, infrastructure literally lays the groundwork for private investment. Businesses move uh, goods to market more efficiently, supply chains operate more reliably, workers connect with more places and higher productivity jobs. And today, we are laying that groundwork at historic scale. Our industrial strategy is making a larger investment in infrastructure than President Eisenhower's interstate highway system. The second broad area is technological innovation. Public investments in research and innovation power the private engine of the American economy. They keep America on the cutting edge, especially when connected to manufacturing. I think this, important, this point is particularly important because of the strong feedback loops between research labs and factory floors. A nation that cedes its manufacturing capabilities risks ceding its technological leadership. And for decades, we have been ceding that ground. But now, with our industrial strategy, we are making a larger investment in innovation than even President Kennedy and the Apollo program that took us to the moon. We're committing the largest five-year investment in research and development in history, connecting all Americans to the digital economy by expanding high-speed internet access, and opening doors of opportunity by investing in STEM education and, and programs like registered apprenticeships, which build skills and a diverse workforce. The third broad area is clean energy. 
Globally, the transition underway that will move us ultimately to a zero carbon economy may be the greatest economic transformation since the Industrial Revolution. It will affect not only how we produce and consume energy, but everything about our lives, how we move, the way that we live. And we know that this transition cannot be addressed by market forces alone. We know public leadership and investment is key to the solution, and yet for decades we have stood by. But now, with our industrial strategy, in this third area, we are making the largest investment in clean energy ever in our nation's history. I couldn't find a former president to make an analog to because we have never done this as a country before. And by providing long-term incentives, we will encourage the private sector to invest at scale. And coupled with regulations that give investors certainty, this plan will spur mature technologies to deploy more quickly, pull emerging innovations to market faster, and reduce greenhouse gas emissions faster than at any time in our history. And as industries develop, will reduce energy prices for families and create high-quality jobs for workers as well. As I said, far from supplanting markets or crowding out private investment, these foundational investments in these areas, infrastructure, innovation, clean energy, will crowd in private investment at historic scale. Indeed, we now estimate that the aggregate investment from President Biden's legislative strategy, including both public capital and private investment, will total some $3.5 trillion over the next decade. That is a large number. It may sound distant. It may sound diffuse. So uh, I, I want to make it really concrete. In just the last two months, just since we passed the last set of this legislation, Intel broke ground outside Columbus with $20 billion semiconductor complex. I had the privilege of being there for that announcement. General Motors committed a billion dollars to make electric vehicle components with UAW workers at its factory in Toledo and has committed to scale lithium battery factory production in Youngstown. First Solar committed almost $200 million to upgrade and expand three solar fa uh, panel factories around Toledo. Ford committed $1.5 billion for its Avon Lake assembly plant just outside uh, our, our fair city, your fair city, adding nearly 2,000 union jobs. This week, Honda and LG announced plans to invest $4.4 billion in an electric vehicle battery plant in Fayette County and further $700 million retooling Honda's existing Ohio facilities to manufacture electric vehicles. That is just in Ohio. I could go on and on. Across the country, countries, companies are investing in manufacturing at historic scale. And this is the dynamism that an industrial strategy can help unlock. The crowding into private capital, the resurgence of American manufacturing, the reshoring of supply chains, the strengthening of our industrial base. This is not in the future tense. It's happening right here and now. And it's happening at a crucial economic moment. Uh, I mentioned the immediacy of the moment, and you all uh, were polite and kind uh, in giving me the time to talk to the President about those issues right now. We face a very complex set of global economic challenges. The serial shocks from the pandemic, supply chain disruption, and Putin's war. Global inflationary pressures are real. Inequality, competition with China and other countries, a widespread reassessment of globalization, uncertainty about America's productive potential. And even as we grapple with these immediate challenges, and central to that is the urgent work to bring down prices for American families, behind them is a central question. 
And this is the question that I probably hear more than ever from business leaders and historians and economists alike. Behind those immediate challenges, can the United States come through this post-pandemic transition stronger, more dynamic, with a higher growth potential and broadly shared prosperity, or do we risk slipping back into a pre-pandemic equilibrium, which was best defined as, a, as an equilibrium of low investment, low growth, low interest rates, but broadening inequality and a seeding of our competitive edge. And so I, I just want to pose a thought experiment of, let's suppose you wanted to design the best antidote to this scenario. The best answer to those who believe that we risk lower productivity and lower economic capacity in our years ahead. You would look to strategic long-term investments in areas with the highest returns for our economy's productive potential. You'd look to places where public capital could expand supply, capacity, and reduce price pressures in our economy. You'd look to areas of growing global demand so that America could gain competitive advantage and increase exports. In other words, you would look for a modern American industrial strategy. And in this context, Secretary Yellen, who, um, uh, who uh, we were just talking to as well, her consistent emphasis on the modern supply side as a concept is, per is particularly apt in describing our economic strategy. And here we're also seeing an emerging bipartisan consensus around these themes, around a more explicit government role in America's industrial uh, development. Indeed, Senator Todd Young of Indiana, um, who was a real leader in getting the chips and science bill through uh, Congress, recently put it well. He said, quote, it's really important not only to our national security, but our economic security and our very way of life that we have effective and at times energetic government. And at a moment when some claim that America is too divided, that democracy can no longer deliver, our industrial strategy is showing that we can come together and invest in ourselves uh, and in our future. So as we look forward, I want to now focus on execution. These elements of the industrial strategy are now in place. We are past the debate and they're now part of the policy fabric of the country. And now we have to execute at scale. So let me just touch on a couple of the, uh, uh, of the things that we need to do and that we will do going forward. First we will use public investment in new ways. Traditionally, you use public investment to just spur private capital. But what we have learned is that the path to, from innovation to scale is a complicated one. And we will use an array of tools to accelerate that progress in new ways. I want to offer a very concrete example of this. Clean hydrogen. A scalable hydrogen economy poses extraordinary opportunities for our country, but a series of collective action problems. And it makes traditional siloed approaches to energy infrastructure at best incomplete. You need cutting edge innovation, industrial uses, large scale production, massive infrastructure investment, and available consumers all simultaneously. And traditionally, public investment has focused on subsidizing production, so think building a hydroelectric dam, or subsidizing distribution, like building transmission lines. We've done that now for hydrogen. Incredibly important. We now have a long-term tax credit that makes it more attractive for companies to invest in production. But that alone may not be enough to capture this opportunity at the speed and scale we need. So we're launching a national effort to create what we call hydrogen hubs. 
What does that mean? It means we'll build regional networks of producers, distributors, end users, and others to do demonstration projects at scale. That means that we will help regions of this country overcome that collective action problem. This could position the U.S. to lead the world in producing clean, low-cost fuel that we could export to Europe and our other allies, an issue of particular salience now when we think about the stakes uh, of uh, the war in Ukraine. It could reshape other industries like steel and making them cleaner and globally cost competitive. So yes, we're incentivizing businesses in a traditional way through tax credits, but through a hydrogen hub, we're also gonna help industries work through their deployment hurdles, pull forward this innovation and deployment more quickly. I wanna offer another example that's very salient to this, uh, uh, to, uh, to this uh, region as well, semiconductors. I mentioned the investment by Intel uh, outside Columbus. We all have experienced in our lives now through the pandemic recovery, the impact of not having enough semiconductors in our lives. They're in fact crucial to every device that one in 10 of you is looking at right now on your, uh, and probably one, one, in, one in two of you is looking at on the, uh, on the live stream. But also the cars we drive, almost everything in the modern economy. And we have now put a strategy in place to build the ecosystem at scale in the United States with speed. That means investing in leading edge technologies so that they're made and invented in America, using grants and tax incentives for manufacturing, using R&D to help prototype and drive collaboration across industry and researchers. And it means, and as we have shown, using export controls where necessary to protect our national security and foreign policy interests. This, I think, uh, these examples I hope underscore to you that this industrial strategy can also scramble old divisions bringing coalitions together to build in places across this country, overcome collective action problems and scale. Which leads to the second really important part of execution, which is building. We need to build as a country at a scale and speed that we have not done in a long time. At core, this is a multi-year national mobilization effort. It is a combined endeavor across infrastructure, innovation, and clean energy that is no less ambitious than the Erie Canal, the transcontinental railroad, rural electrification, the interstate highway system. And the scale of the task is enormous. It will test our country and our institutions, and it will require reforming how we build as a country. And we have to grapple with the hard fact that in America, we have lagged major economies in building on budget and on time, including economies with stronger labor, environmental, and historic protections. So we need to do things differently. We need to build renewed capacity to move fast, not only at the federal level, but with state, local, and tribal partners. And before much of this legislation passed this summer, uh, I, I, I noted that this could be the single hardest element of our entire effort. And so over the last six months, we have been developing a game plan to build faster and smarter at the center that starts with the federal government. And like any project, and many of you who run businesses know, it starts with planning. A better permitting process benefits everybody. Advocates and community members want certainty just as much as developers and investors. And our new plan will surge resources for agencies to provide that certainty by streamlining environmental reviews and permitting processes. We need serious accountability measures to monitor progress of building. And our plan is going to overhaul the systems that track and manage those projects. We're going to do things that sound simple, but are hard, 
like dig once. If we're going to widen a road, we should lay broadband and we should lay transmission lines as well. And we're going to expand use of tools like project labor agreements, which reduce the risk of costly delays and disruptions on complex projects by making sure they're handled in the right way by highly skilled workers planned out on the front end. Um, in fact, today at the White House right now, we are convening the first ever summit on better project delivery, where ideas that are as simple as dig once, we need to make those from concept to reality by bringing all of the relevant actors around the table and saying, let's commit to this national uh, effort. I want to use a, one specific example here, which is critical minerals. For those of you who have now heard a lot about semiconductors in the course of the post-pandemic, we're going to hear a lot about critical minerals in the years ahead because they are the building blocks for many modern technologies, including electric vehicle batteries, of which Ohio apparently intends to lead the country and the world. Um, there are those who really doubt that America is up to the challenge of developing our own upstream and midstream critical minerals industry. And this is an area that has been dominated by China. But just last week, America's first cobalt mine opened with local environmental groups. And businesses are racing to build new factories to recover lithium from California's brines near the Salton Sea, which is now being called the Lithium Valley for its vast resources. Um, we'll see if that one sticks. Uh, so as part of our plan, this month we will launch a dedicated effort around critical minerals. This is one of the hardest things. We have not done this right we have not done this in a way that protects um, our environment or particularly tribal equities in the past. But we're going to bring together new approaches to community engages, grants and loans to support critical minerals extraction, processing and recycling, and a diplomatic effort to build a reliable global supply chain as well. And as we do this, we will focus in building on place and on equity, on where and how we build because it actually unlocks more of our nation's economic potential. And Cleveland embodies this spirit. For those who were escaping the Jim Crow South, the industrial jobs available in Cleveland offered a beacon of hope and economic opportunity even as they continue to face discrimination. Um, as I was preparing for this, I learned about a great inventor named Garrett Morgan. Born in the wake of the Civil War to parents who'd been enslaved, with only a sixth grade education, moved to Cleveland, started repairing sewing machines. He eventually developed what were known as safety hoods for firefighters and a traffic light that had a third signal. So today we know those as the gas mask and the yellow light. And indeed, every time our nation has embarked on a new effort to build, we've also taken steps to perfect our, imperfect, our imperfect union. And we have an opportunity to do that now because building fast and building fairly don't have to be intention. In fact, quite the opposite. Building infrastructure and building capability in every part of our country, including communities that haven't benefited from past efforts and communities that were harmed by our building long ago, is what will unlock the productive potential of our economy. And that's why, for example, part of our strategy that may end up being the most important is providing explicit benefits to businesses built into the tax code that if they build, for example, clean energy infrastructure in communities that have relied on traditional energy uh, industry jobs like Cleveland, they will get 
a benefit. We should have no illusions that this will be easy, and it's not the job of government alone. It will require a national mobilization to build capacity across the board, but I've never seen a moment where we've had more opportunity to do exactly that. Last part of execution is we will meet this global moment even as we focus on building American strength. And enhanced engagement with our partners abroad is a absolute, absolute matter of economic and geographic necessity because it's neither feasible nor advisable for us to produce everything uh, domestically. It's also a matter of geopolitical necessity. Our national and economic security interests are bolstered through strong alliances, and that's what we have been focused on uh, as an administration. In particular, we have been focused on a new form of supply chain diplomacy. We agreed with 18 trading partners to make our collective supply chains more secure, diverse, resilient, and we'll continue those efforts, including exploring new ideas like a supply chain stress testing regime to identify vulnerabilities before they become crisis. Uh, but I want to be clear about one point on this issue of strategic engagement. This is about engagement, not isolationism. Because some have raised the valid concern that says, if countries keep one-upping each other in doing larger and larger subsidies for their own industries, are we going to reduce efficiency globally? But the investments we're making will pay enormous global dividends in expanding supply and driving down costs, in part because we're focused on these industries like semiconductors and clean energy, where we are nowhere near the global saturation point of investment. We are going to need as a world, as a planet, as a globe, multiples of capacity in these areas over the coming years. And so we should welcome action by most countries if they are consistent with our values, structured fairly, and scaled appropriately. So that's what we're going to focus on in execution, on using these public investment tools in new ways, on building, building at scale and speed and in a smarter way, and doing it by engaging strategically with our allies and partners around the world. And if we do that right, it should fuel innovation in places like Cleveland around the country, as, it, as we have done in prior eras of our country. And one thing about innovation that we know is history can move very fast. I know that, uh, that, uh, uh, that others like to claim, uh, lay claim to the Wright brothers, but it was here in Ohio that they opened a bicycle shop that changed the world because they honed their craft of their first flight in, in Dayton. And 66 years later, led by Ohio's own Neil Armstrong, American astronauts launched into space on Apollo 11. So we went from bicycle shop to the moon in the span of a single lifetime. Again, America invested in Ohio, Ohio's, Ohioans invested in America. And today, history is moving fast again, and we as a nation need to keep pace. And I believe that with this modern American industrial strategy, we are embarking on a strategy that is up to meeting this moment. And I would end by saying two things. One, I do hope and believe that participating in this endeavor of executing on this industrial strategy can and should be a source of national community and individual pride and can bring together coalitions that have, for many years, not seen an opportunity or a rationale to work together. And for the corporate leaders who are here today, 
Now that America is making an investment in ourselves, I hope you will do everything you can to invest in your workers, in the communities in which you operate as well. We've always been a nation of builders, and Cleveland knows this as well as anywhere in America, and armed with this industrial strategy, we have every reason to believe that, the America, that America's long-term economic potential is very bright. So with that, thank you. Thank you very much for the opportunity, and I look forward to the conversation. We're about to begin the audience Q&A. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, and those joining us via our live stream at thecityclub.org. If you'd like to tweet a question for our panelists, not our panelists, for Brian, <laughs> please tweet it at the City Club. You can text it to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794, and the City Club staff will work it into the program. May we have the first question, please? Hi, uh, thank you for doing this. My name is Bethia Burke. I um, am with the Fund for Economic Future. I appreciate you raising uh, rising inequality as one of the economic issues you're aiming to combat. One of the challenges over the last couple of decades is that rising productivity has not translated into shared gains. And I wonder if you could talk more about what about these bills gives you confidence that this time will be different. Yeah. Uh, it's a great question. and. Uh, incredibly important because it is at the core of this question of um, how do we expand our productive potential as an economy but do so in a way that actually where the benefits of that are seen and broadly distributed, distributed to workers, distributed to communities uh, as well. And I think one of the reasons why we have seen, particularly over the course of the last couple of decades, um, this divergence is that the, the productivity uh, that we have seen has not been connected to strategic, uh, strategic investments to actually expand uh, that potential across time. And so I think that now there's a couple of reasons to be optimistic. One is the global economic environment. In the post-pandemic world, we're seeing companies rethink this basic idea of productivity above all else and just-in-time you know, just supply chains above all else. And so a focus on, regional, uh, on, on resilience and on localization of supply chains um, and resilience of their workforce is something that's much more salient uh, because of the economic reality uh, of the last couple of years. The second is uh, technology. And we're seeing in advancements, for example, in things like 3D printing and robotics, where in fact, on the factory floor, the impact is not necessarily a 3D printing machine replacing workers, but instead the augmentation of processes in a way that allows the United States to do higher value manufacturing in a way that could actually expand more opportunities. One of the things that I was saying about the industrial strategy is very important is, you know, when I was saying what you would look for as an antidote, Focusing on areas of global growth, where what we can do as a country is actually position ourselves to gain greater export share across time, means that we can use higher value manufacturing processes to actually grow our, 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 our manufacturing base even as we innovate. 
But the third reason, so there's, I think there's a sort of macro reason, there's a, 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 embedded in the technology, but the third reason is because of the explicit policy framework we have in place. If you look across these bills, more so than at any, any time in recent history, the incentives and the requirements uh, connected to public investment are about place and they're about workers. And so, you know, when you're, if you're going to be the recipient of a large grant as part of the semiconductor program, you have to demonstrate that you are investing in local, local work, workforce capabilities, that you're using small suppliers and diverse suppliers so that you build a regional ecosystem. Uh, and, you know, a lot of these companies see the reason to do that over the long term, but the policies mean they're not going to get the incentives unless they do. And I think that sends an important signal about where the government is and that these are long-term incentives as well. I know a lot of you know, things that have, have, have tripped us up in the past is the stop and start of policy. Almost everything I'm talking about here is baked into um, our policy framework now for a decade, if not more, which gives a lot of certainty uh, to those with private capital as well. Okay. Oh, Brian, <clears throat> I'm a manufacturer here in Cleveland. <clears throat> and my concern, I, th I think you do, you've done a wonderful job <clears throat> with this industrial policy. I, I think in Ohio is a beautiful example of, of, of a state where you've really succeeded. And, and I think this is going to be, <clears throat> excuse me, very important uh, for the future. The problem I see, and I see it from, from my, my work experience, is that we don't have enough trained people. Mm -hmm. And apprentice programs are fine, but we need a deeper dive into teaching people how you make things. And the question I have is, how do you think, I mean, for example, we'll be building a lot of bridges. Well, we don't have enough people to build the bridges we have now. So the question I have is how can, while the Biden administration is in, is in power here, how can we create a serious education program to, to bring people into the industrial economy and, 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 and do, do that sort of thing? Yeah. <clears throat> Look, I agree completely with your diagnosis. Uh, uh, and the, the, the way that I would answer that question is to say, if we diagnose where we are in the labor market today, um, we don't in America have a worker shortage. We have a shortage of effective ways of getting people who desperately want to work in jobs <laughs> that, are, that are connected to careers and opportunities and not just, uh, uh, not just exploitation. Uh, getting them, the, the people who are eager to do so, connected to those jobs in a way that is efficient and a way that is calibrated to businesses' needs. And the best way that we can do that is to take advantage of the assets and strengths that we have as a country. Our community college system, uh, our system of research universities, but we need to be much more intentional about connecting businesses, local businesses like yours in regions where you operate, to sit down and say, what exactly are those skills? Um, where are they going in the future, and how can, you, how can we develop and train people for them in a way that works and suits uh, that environment? But, but don't you think we need to go a little deeper than that? I mean, to the high schools and even the middle schools and possibly even the elementary schools to Absolutely. begin to get this stuff going. And, and how can the federal government help support communities like, say, CMSD, the Cleveland School System, 
to be able to fund programs like that. Yeah, look, a absolutely. It, it's it's going to require going. It's it, it's going to require thinking differently about how we get people to a place where they have the the skills and the aptitude to do the high tech manufacturing and the and the and the, and the high tech uh, work that's involved in working at a semiconductor fab, which requires a, you know, a different set of skills. And so, you know, what, what the federal government uh, can do is a couple of things. One, we can use the incentives that, 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 that federal taxpayer incentives to encourage more of this effort at the local level. And we can encourage, again, I, I think that businesses and communities coming together to identify what those skills are together is the, most, is the way that at least I have seen this works the best. So even when you talk about high schools or you talk about vocational schools or middle schools, it still has to be informed by what are the actual needs in the local economy. Too often we, don't, we skip that or we, we, we do these things uh, divorced and in silos. And I think one of the things that we at the federal government can do because we are making these historic investments is attach requirements or incentives for exactly that to happen. So if an Intel is coming in uh, to the Columbus region, or if a Honda and LG are coming into uh, the Cleveland region, to say you've got to sit down, and you've got to sit down not only with uh, the community colleges, but also with the school systems as well, and really lay out what it is uh, uh, that are the needs, and then work backward from that. Thank you, Brian. Uh, Dan mentioned some important investments in education and at younger ages, and he's personally got um, been involved in that. But I think something more important is he has a facility in North Collinwood, which is a neighborhood in Cleveland. It's one thing to have people that are trained. It's another to get them to work, I, I mean, like, logistically. When we had the CHIP presentation here a few weeks ago, they talked about all the coordination and cooperation like you've just discussed. When I asked the question about how have you integrated public transportation into your planning, there was the uh, deer in the headlights look. So we've got an Intel plant that's going to be built out away from everything. We know there will be roads built so the trucks can get in and out and so the executive cars can get in and out. But there's no plan that I'm aware of in any way to get workers from Columbus to there. So does any of this infrastructure plan involve building in public transportation so that goal of diversity and equity and employment can actually be attained logistically? Yeah. Uh, my short answer is absolutely. And if they don't, um, if they, if Give they didn't the have a good answer. answer. <laughs> if they, if they, uh, if they didn't, uh, if they, didn't, if, they didn't have a, if they didn't have a good answer to that question uh, when they were here uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, they absolutely will and, and will need to by the time they are, um, uh, they're, they're breaking ground and bringing uh, workers there at scale. It's um, actually one of the things I mentioned this, uh, this summit that's, that's happening at the White House today. One of the key elements of that is to say, how do we make sure that, you know, some of this is just basic uh, coordination. You know, when I say dig once and it sort of seems, it seems obvious, that these are the things that have gotten in the way uh, in the past. But to be very concrete, the infrastructure bill is making a historic investment in, uh, in rapid transit and in localized, local and regional public transit, which could be in some cases light rail, it could be bus, it could be otherwise. Those funds 
are explicitly have requirements associated with them to have a plan both with local employers, but also importantly around housing and local zoning too. Because one of the answers to the question is how do you get people, uh, uh, how do you get people from where they live to where the jobs are? The other is how do you create more aff affordable housing opportunities so that people can come into the region as well? And if we don't get those things effectively uh, uh, stitched together, then we're gonna be missing the full economic opportunity. So it's high on our radar screen. It requires coordination and, and left hand talking to the right hand in ways they haven't before. But to the point I was making earlier, that is the core of the execution challenge and the opportunity that we have in front of us today. Good afternoon, my name is Chris Nance. I work at the Greater Cleveland Partnership, the region's chamber. We're actively working right now with the city of Cleveland, speaking of the right hand and the left hand, on advancing and codifying community benefit agreements. You mentioned project labor agreements being a key part of the administration strategy. Have you considered also community benefit agreements uh, which uh, actively work to engage uh, parts of the community that uh, are often uh, not participating in this uh, significant investment by federal, state, and local uh, funding? Thank yep. you. Um, I like these questions because the answer to that one is absolutely two, but, uh, but, but to be more concrete as well, um, these types of tools, community benefit agreements, project labor agreements, um, are things that you will see explicitly in, you know, when the Commerce Department puts out a notice of funding opportunity, or the Transportation Department puts out a notice of funding opportunity. Communities that actually have these benefit agreements in place are gonna get preference. Uh, in the awarding of competitive uh, grants. And that, you know, um, uh, you, you, you know this better than I do, that probably is a more powerful incentive than any to get folks around a table uh, and actually uh, hash this out. So we're gonna really lean in to saying communities that can figure out how to get this coordination right, not dictated from Washington, but organized and encouraged by that, are gonna fare better, are gonna get more federal resource more quickly. and. You know, one of the things that leaves me optimistic about this, as hard as these things are, we, and, and, and we haven't gotten them right in the past, is that today, employers have a more affirmative economic incentive to get them right than in recent history. Uh, to the question about worker shortage, companies have more uh, uh, bandwidth now than they did a decade ago when we were in an output-constrained economy where you couldn't justify spending on training. Now, a lot of what I hear from employers is we'll spend on training. We don't know how to do it. We don't know where to do it. We don't know how to do it effectively. Same with community benefit agreements. We're willing to work in new ways, tell us how to do it. So I think we've got a real opportunity, and you'll see from the federal government a commitment to incentivize that uh, by putting the grant dollars where our mouth is. In a staggeringly politicized, polarized environment, <clears throat> you were able to put together a bipartisan coalition for the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act. That was beautifully executed, and it's a precious thing to see that degree of bipartisan involvement. Is there a coalition buried there that listens to the coherent message you brought us today and has the potential to put both parties behind projects going forward rather than having just a lot of brickbats? So I really appreciate the question, um, and in some ways, you know, it's, it, it may be among the most important in terms of the, the durability of this. But I think 
I think the, 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 the answer to that is yes, because of exactly what we're talking about in terms of a, an industrial strategy that brings people together. If you think about the three real drivers of this legislatively, it's the infrastructure law, it's the Chips and Science Act, and it's the clean energy incentives for businesses uh, and, uh, um, and, and, and workers in the Inflation Reduction Act. The Chips and Science Act was also a strongly bipartisan effort. It took 18 months to bring together. The, inflation I mean the, uh, the infrastructure bill, likewise. And as I talk to business leaders and others, there's very little actual kind of um, intensely partisan debate around providing long-term incentives for things like clean hydrogen, electric vehicles, nuclear, uh, storage, that are unlocking economic opportunity in places uh, like Cleveland. And so I think the opportunity we have, and frankly, you're, you know, uh, the Ohio congressional delegation embodies this. Um, and folks like uh, Senator, uh, Senator Brown and Senator Portman uh, working together on things like the Chips and Science Act and the infrastructure law. And, you know, I would be remiss if I didn't say, you know, the leadership of President Biden, who recognizes and understands how to work in a methodical way to bring people around the table. I think that we can both in substance and in execution and in narrative reinforce that the things we're talking about here are pragmatic. Uh, they're, 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 they're difficult. They're hard. But the reason why they're hard is because we have to overcome some of these practical challenges. We need to figure out how to you know, create more jobs more quickly, more economic opportunity, um, and that that has real opportunity. I, I, really, I really do believe that there is a, um, that, that people could feel confident in this being a more long-term and enduring trend, in part because it could transcend some of the traditional divides that have gotten us hung up in the past. Thank you for your comments today, uh, Brian. Um, my question is related to the Eisenhower Highway and the 1950s post-war boom. Um, it created a lot of cities, like the one that I represent. I'm the Economic Development Director for the city of North Olmsted. Um, in Ohio and, and across Northeast Ohio, uh, there are a lot of shopping malls that even pre-COVID were on the decline, creating millions upon millions of square feet of vacant, underutilized, and abandoned spaces. Um, in hearing your comments today around industrial strategy, do you see a federal policy on the horizon where the industrial strategy coalesces in a way that can help communities like the one that I represent reimagine these spaces to once again become engines for economic vitality? Because oftentimes these spaces are located on the federal highway systems. They're buildings that are already built. Um, they just need uh, a new life or a second life. And so I'm interested to hear your comments relative mm -hmm. to that. Well, I think if we, do this, um, uh, if we do this well, what we should be doing is think about how to unlock the greatest potential from uh, revitalizing our existing infrastructure, building where we need to, uh, but rebuilding and revitalizing where we have the opportunity to. Um, it's, always more, it's always more economically efficient to revitalize. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so the question is, how can we build strategies that come ultimately from the local and regional level and empower those strategies in ways that will be effective. And look, the sort of re-enhancement of the federal, uh, you know, the, the interstate highway system has to be one for the 21st century. 
So, you know, one of the things that, <laughs> one of the things that we're doing is building a national network of electric vehicle chargers, not just on the highways, but in communities as well. Because one of the things that, you know, that people have said is that if they want to come and shop at a, uh, at a mall or at a multi-use, you know, sort of uh, newer multi-use commercial and, you know, some, uh, uh, some residential or otherwise, having community charging makes it more attractive to do so um, uh, as well. So uh, the, the opportunity is to say, we need to invest and we need to revitalize. And where we have existing assets, how can we deploy them uh, to the greatest effect? And where we are lacking those assets, how do we build and build efficiently to scale? And so uh, yeah, I think that this, this, this offers great opportunity, but also I think a challenge, a constructive challenge back to communities like yours and otherwise to step up and say, what does that look like, right? What is, the, what is the vision of the future? Now you have an opportunity to actually have the federal government as a partner in building that. Thank you. Hi, I'm Courtney Kishwa. I work in Cleveland's economic development ecosystem, but I'm asking this question in my personal capacity. Um, so <laughs> just have a little, you know, <laughs> to do the legal <laughs> disclaimer. Um, so we know that industrial production today is um, increasingly unsustainable. We're on track to hit 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming by 2030, which we previously thought we'd have until 2050 to reach. It is the challenge of our time. Um, the United States is also the highest per capita emitter, not even taking into consideration our military operations, which means we have a unique responsibility um, to address it. And this is the crucial decade to act and will require a World War II level of mobilization by countries and companies to meet this. We also know that we have all of the solutions already existing. And I so appreciate all of the work that the administration and Congress have done, um, but it's not enough. I'm terrified for what the next few decades hold. Um, Cleveland itself is projected to become as hot as Atlanta. Sorry, I know this is long. Um, and the U.S. is projected to have to spend $1 trillion per year to transition appropriately. Um, but that $1 trillion per year is also expected to recoup 6x that time in benefits down the line from preventing disaster management um, and responding to humanitarian crises and preventing the increased food costs from unstable growing seasons. The IRA is $370 billion. Um, it's historic and important and gives me a lot of hope, um, but I'm scared that we will consider the issue to be done and settled. My question is, what's next? <laughs> if you can answer that. <laughs> um, I, I think you are, you know, you're, um, you're right, and we all should be right to be um, uh, appropriately energized by the, the, the magnitude and the gravity of the crisis. Uh, and certainly it's true for President Biden, it's true for me and others that what animates a lot of the work we do is that the, if we don't get right a solution to the climate crisis at the speed and the scale necessary, um, then we're not going to uh, have a habitable planet for our children and grandchildren and every other element that we want to achieve will get, um, uh, uh, at minimum, will get more uh, difficult to do. Um, and so, the answer to what's, I, I think you're right to have that degree of, uh, of concern, but I also appreciate that you're also right to have an extraordinary amount of, of, of hope right now. Because for the first time, and I've been working on this issue for many, many years, for the first time, uh, the United States is not just debating the issue, not just engaging on the issue, but has actually acted and passed long-term legislation and reform that is the most ambitious and the most consequential 
action that we have taken to reduce greenhouse gases at a speed and a scale that we've never done as a country in our history. And so the challenge uh, remaining in front of us is, is, is significant, but we should all take energy from the fact that that's what we're doing. And I want to connect it back to, to, your question, uh, to your question as well. We're doing that in a way that can bring more people into this effort because this is about creating jobs, creating economic opportunity, and putting the United States in a position to gain, comp gain competitive advantage in technologies that are going to open extraordinary opportunities around the globe. So one of the answers to what's next is this is a place where the United States investing and innovating at a scale and speed is devastatingly important for the world community as well. I mentioned clean hydrogen. That creates an extraordinary economic opportunity for us, for the United States and our, and our workers. But being on the edge of that innovation means unlocking lower cost uh, solutions for other countries as well. That's true for that's true for everything from small modular nuclear to you know the 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 solutions in the agricultural sector. It's some of the hardest to abate parts of our economy. What's next is also we're we're going. To, and I mentioned I just I mentioned it uh, briefly. We need to couple the investments in the Inflation uh, Reduction Act, the historic investments, with a regulatory framework that provides long-term certainty, but also makes sure that we hit the climate targets that we have set as a country. And because of the investments in the Inflation Reduction Act, we can do that in a way that also reduces energy costs, energy costs for consumers and energy costs for businesses. So that's the other piece of this uh, that is uh, next as well. And then the third thing I would say is we need to engage effectively on the international, uh, on the international scene and encourage and partner for greater ambition as well, and also hold other countries accountable when they're falling behind on that front, because ultimately, this is a this is a, a global problem that needs a global solution. Yeah, awesome. Thank you. Thank you to Brian Dees, the director of the White House National Economic Council, who's been joining us at the City Club Forum today. Today's forum is the annual David Warshawski. Memorial Forum. David Warshawski joined the City Club in 1918 when he was 25 years old and was the City Club's second oldest member for many years, having been a member for 71 years. That's something for all of us to aspire to. During his time, he served as the treasurer, the vice president, and a board director of the City Club. We would like to welcome the Warshawski family and friends who are here with us today. Thank you for over 100 years of support for free speech and democracy. We would also like to welcome guests at tables hosted by Cuyahoga Community College, the Greater Cleveland Partnership, Ohio Aerospace Institute, and Team NEO. Thank you for all being here today. Coming up at the City Club this Monday, October 17th, we will hear from Congressman Tim Ryan. And also make sure to join us at the City Club annual meeting on Friday, October 28th. Um, David Isay, from the founder of StoryCorps, will talk about his new project called One Small Step. Tickets are still available, and you can find out more about these forums and others at our website, cityclub.org. And that brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you again to Brian Deese. Thank you to our members and friends of the City Club. I'm Robin Minter-Smyers, and this forum is now adjourned.
For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.